Before moving to Connecticut, I worked for a number of years with at youth risk with at youth with at risk youth in an immigrant neighborhood in Los Angeles. I played baseball, soccer, and football with the kids. I took them on outings to the beach, to the mountains, to parks, to museums, anywhere we could think of. I ran an after-school tutoring program, and above all else, I hung out with the kids. Much of what I did depended on being able to create an environment where the youth felt safe, where they could freely share whatever was on their heart, where they could ask questions about anything, where they could let down their guard and reveal their struggles without being shamed. In such an environment, they thrived, and I was treated to conversations that I will treasure for the rest of my life. To create such an environment, I eventually hit upon one word with particular resonance in the neighborhood that communicated how I expected the youth to behave in the activities that I led. That word was respect. You see, the local gangs were hypersensitive to whether people treated them with respect or disrespect. If a gang member felt dissed, they were likely to pull out a gun and start shooting. So the kids got it when I talked about respect. And we were able to redeem the word from its gang context to put it to use to create an atmosphere in which nobody fought with each other or put each other down. If a kid crossed that line, they had to leave for the day. In the long run, creating this type of environment worked. Along with other factors going on in the neighborhood, the youth voted with their feet and the gang eventually withered away for lack of recruits. But there were bumps along the way. One Saturday morning when I invited all the boys to my apartment to play games, things started going wrong. A couple kids got into a scuffle and had to leave. Then a couple more kids started calling each other names. And so it went until the last two kids who were brothers got into quite a fight. I had set the morning apart to spend time with the youth, but I was left sitting alone in my apartment. What could I do? I could hear the kids who I picked out of my apartment still hanging out in the hallway outside the door. That wasn't surprising. In the building where we all lived, entire extended families were jammed into one-room apartments, and the wide hallways of the building served as an overflow space for kids. I wanted to be with those kids. But it was also important that my apartment remain a place where nobody would be insulted, criticized, or hurt, a sanctuary from the violence outside. I couldn't just invite everyone back in. So I went out the door of my apartment, sat down on the floor in the hallway, and spent the morning with the kids out there. That Saturday morning, I learned something about the heart of God. I'd lived a parable. As much as I wanted to be with those kids, it's just a shadow of how much God wants to be with us. God goes out to find us when we stray from him. Which brings us to this morning's gospel.
Notice in the parable of the shepherd and the lost sheep that it's not important how the sheep was lost. There's no indication as to whether the sheep is trying to find its way back to the shepherd. The only thing that matters is that the sheep belongs to the shepherd. Psychologists call the type of love in which we belong to each other attachment. The Hebrew word for this is hesed. It is often translated steadfast love, loving kindness, faithfulness, or mercy. But no translation does justice to hesed. Hesed is the kind of love in which we become part of each other. When no one can ever take our place. If I lose a brother, another brother will never take that brother's place. We are connected with each other forever. As it says over and over again in the Psalms, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. The chesed of the Lord endures forever. With this parable, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that God's love for us does not depend on any of the things that we do to get recognized in this world, accomplishments, position, appearance, or scrupulous adherence to moral norms. We are loved and irreplaceable simply because of who we are. Jesus takes this point further with the next parable about the woman who had lost a coin. Some commentators suggest that the 10 coins may be the woman's dowry sewn onto her garment as an ornament. Just as the flock of sheep won't be complete without the missing sheep, this woman's garment wouldn't be complete until she finds that coin. Once again, Jesus is pointing to how irreplaceable we are in the economy of God's love. In the parable of the woman and the coin, Jesus also taps into that feeling that's so familiar to all of us when we've lost something important and we can't think of anything else until we find it. God searches for us with that same urgency. It is no accident that this parable is paired in today's lectionary with some of the starkest descriptions of how lost we are. As today's psalm says, the Lord looks down from heaven upon us all to see if any who are is wise, if there's one who seeks after God. Everyone has proved faithless. All alike have turned bad. There is none who does good. No, not one. Only in the context of God's deep attachment love for us can we face how badly humankind has gone astray. Reading passages that speak of God's judgment, it is all too easy to feel condemned, depressed, or hopeless on one side, or to react defensively and try to justify ourselves on the other side, or simply to ignore these passages and change the channel. We lose sight of God's desire to correct and restore us. Jesus said there is no, there is no condemnation in Christ. Christ came 
not to condemn the world, but to save the world. I think it's easy to miss that the end point of today's psalm is when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, Jacob will rejoice and Israel will be glad. Rejoicing and gladness is the point. We don't have many examples of healthy correction in our culture. Correction that lovingly reminds us who God calls us to be. Correction that does not leave us alone in our suffering, but that also is clear-eyed about the havoc wrecked by our failure to follow God. So in the larger context of our first reading today from Jeremiah, it's part of a larger passage, and there's three things that frame the description of judgment that we heard in the passage that we actually read today in church. And these things are a good interpretive lens for most of the judgment scriptures in the Old Testament. First, about a chapter beforehand, there's an expression of the heart of God. How gladly I would treat you like my children and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me. So that's the heart in which these words come. And then there's the fact that judgment is not the capricious act of a vengeful God, but the inescapable consequence of our failing to do what is good. It says... Your own conduct and actions have brought this upon you. This is your punishment. How bitter it is. How it pierces to the heart. And the third framing passage speaks to the pain that both God and Jeremiah feel. Oh, my anguish. Oh, my anguish. I writhe in pain. Oh, the agony of my heart. My heart pounds within me. I cannot keep silent. A wise person once told me that I never had the right to prophecy to somebody unless I'd wept over them first. We need to be very careful that whenever we try to hold a mirror that something is wrong, that that mirror is filled with our love first. Nevertheless, Jeremiah spares no punches in laying out how destructive sin is. He says, I looked on the earth, and lo, it was waste and void. The only other place where waste and void occurs in the scripture is way back at Genesis 1. Listen to the part of this passage and see if you can hear how our failure to follow God is leading to creation itself being undone. I looked on the earth, and lo, it was waste and void. And to the heavens, they had no light. Remember, that's what comes next in Genesis. I looked to the mountains, and lo, they were quaking. Like the ocean, maybe? And all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and lo, there was no one at all, and all the birds had fled. 
I looked, and lo, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid ruin. We're capable of undoing parts of God's creation by our failure to follow him. And those verses strike home, particularly in this year where there's so much drought, weather catastrophes, and food. Or as the psalm says, we wreak havoc on each other. Those evildoers who eat up my people like bread, consuming each other. The Lord's conclusion to this is, is two-edged. Because of this, the earth shall mourn and the heavens above grow black. There's such profound sadness there. But the earth mourned and the heavens grew black on that day when Christ was crucified as well. And so even in the midst of the destruction, there's this hint that the Lord will come and redeem. There are many ways that we miss the mark. Now be careful. If, any of, if you start feeling small and worthless, that's condemnation. That's not what the Lord intends. If you start brushing it off and saying, not me, beware. The Lord, at the beginning of the Jeremiah passage, says, for my people are foolish. They do not know me. They're stupid children. They have no understanding. They are skilled in doing evil, but they do not know how to do good. Let me unpack that into some of the ways that we fall short. Sometimes we're trying to do the right thing, but we just miss the mark. Other times we deliberately disobey, doing what the Lord tells us not to do or not doing what he tells us to do. But there's some other more subtle ways that this passage points to uh, where we can actually be of help to each other as a church community. Sometimes we've never had examples of how to do things the way God would have them do them. Kids, as we grow up and mature, we get examples of how to handle a particular situation. And many of us, there's situations where we don't know how to handle because we've never seen anybody doing it. And that part of the gift of a community is that different people have figured, have come across ways, godly ways of doing, handling different sorts of situations. So in community, we can help each other with that. I know um, I, when I uh, was called upon to supervise our sexton, I was not eager to do so. And over time, as I unpacked that, I realized that was because all the examples I'd seen of supervision were very coercive, punitive, and not 
a way of helping somebody to do better by reminding them of who God saw them as. A way that would actually leave them smiling and energized even as they saw the point that something needed to change. Ellen, Bill, and Chuck helped me with that one. Sometimes our ideas about what is good and, and what is bad is distorted. All of us are subject to that because every culture gets some things right and some things wrong. Um, I probably don't need, I look at our political culture and some things that people think are great are not godly, are clearly not godly in the way that people treat each other. And sometimes our lives are twisted by bad habits. What's important, though, is for us to be eager for God to correct us, knowing of his great love for us, knowing that he only desires restoration, health, and life. As it says earlier in the passage from Isaiah, it says, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am merciful declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. You have rebelled against the Lord your God. That acknowledge your guilt. It's so easy when, when we have a culture where people will seize on our weaknesses, hide them, little white lie. To, I hope that we'll, we'll be developing a community where we can talk to each other about those things and learn. Where other, we can learn from each other's example, where others can help us see our blind spots, and where we are, are eager to seek correction. We are not stiff-necked. Somebody who's stiff-necked cannot bow their head and say, and be humble. Stiff-necked is the opposite of being humble. So, um, last night as I was working on this sermon, I came to a point where I said to the Lord, I can't do this. I believe St. John's, I really believe in what we're called to be. I believe we're called to be a place that reverses some of the toxic polarization in our society. I believe we're a place that's called to push in deeper and talk about hard things with each other. But how can I lead this people, I said to God, with all of my flaws and weaknesses? How can I speak these words in the middle of my prayerlessness this week, my evasions of God's call, my slowness of heart to respond? I felt the Lord saying, that's exactly why I want it to be you. We're also a church where we don't put people on pedestals, where every one of us needs correction from each other and support. This is not a leader. This is not a church that magnifies any leader except Jesus. He says, 
have hope because I love you and I will never let you go.